Anybody have a Lionel train set when they were kids? And the train would go around and the thing would come out and go, that's DJ, he keeps cutting out of the door. He's like, that's it, it's like mechanical. <laughs> Anyways, not to draw attention. Let me know when we're ready. Oh, we've been good? Oh, that's, that's nice. Hello, everyone. Michelle, is this the one that goes out to, is this the night that goes out to the, uh, oh, good. Let's make sure it's Thursday. The Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 52. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. <clears throat> thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the inspired Word of God. Thank you for giving us vision and the resultant perspective as a result of that vision in our own lives as we carry out the uniqueness of our existence, yet we are a collective, your son's body, his bride, his church. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for that sacrifice on the cross to form said church. What a privilege this is. We ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 52. <clears throat> Here's where we began on Sunday. Just a heads up, tonight's going to be a fair amount of synthesizing because we're coming back out of, remember, uh, prosperity, which was under predestination, which also had another branch, which was suffering, all of that was halfway between sanctification perspective and, excuse me, salvation perspective and sanctification perspective. So we're going to sort of tie up some loose ends and come back up to sanctification perspective and end there this evening. So uh, with that said, here's how we began on Sunday in Luke 12. I'll give you the New Living Translation up here on the board. Luke 12:15. Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. That's a nice little statement. Life is not measured by how much you own. The summary of the parable uh, of the rich man and his increasing barns is found a little bit later on in that passage. I'll give you the New Living again, verses 19 to 21 of Luke 12 up here on the board. And I'll sit back and say to myself, Quote, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. So on this topic of prosperity... As we prepare now to put this little sidebar to bed, prosperity has to do with understanding God's economy. This came out on Sunday morning. Uh, prosperity has to do with understanding God's economy in the first place. And that's why, if you recall, we studied out Satan's economy, God's economy. We had these sort of baseline precepts already in place. That's how he works. We didn't know we were going to be studying prosperity to this degree back when we studied that. He did. And so he let that sort of, you know, do its thing in your soul, sort of situate itself in your, so itself in your souls. And then along comes this, oh, these teachings on prosperity. So it's important that we had that um, perspective of God's economy in the first place which, of course, stands in stark contrast to Satan's economy. Think about it. It doesn't make any real sense to consider prosperity if you don't have a sense of bearing in God's economy. It doesn't make any real sense to consider prosperity because you're lost. You don't understand the underlying uh, economy, the, the institution of God's economy in the first place to even be talking coherently about prosperity because prosperity is sort of a, uh, an asset or a facet of an economy. Um, so it's important that we understand God's economy. 
So it doesn't make any real sense to study out prosperity if you don't have a sense of bearing in God's economy. God's economy is about having one's cup filled by grace to the point where it overflows even. That's that Greek word, parasuo. And then giving to others. That's what his economy looks like. It's all grace. It's having our cups filled by grace. They overflow and we give grace to others. That's the basic cycle. And by the way, the Bible never suggests a mandatory sacrifice of the bare essentials to live. To the contrary, that's the analogy that Jesus gives during his presentation in the Beatitudes. Just as a side note, um, to cover all our bases, the Bible never says that it's mandatory to sacrifice the essentials to live. In other words, you're not to make that mistake. An example that always comes to mind is the, the uh, irresponsible pastor even. The person who says, oh, I got my spiritual calling. And then he goes off and you know, opens up a defunct ministry that has zero income. And his family's out in the street starving with tin cups type thing. Well, that guy's worse than an infel, infidel. So says the Bible. So in other words, there's a sense of layering of responsibilities. Uh, and that's also part of the grander scheme of God's economy. So just as a side note, uh, when it comes to giving, make sure that um, you're not necessarily, I don't think anybody's doing that in here, by the way, for the record, that I know of. But <laughs> I think the Spirit's been on a different subject altogether, hasn't he? <laughs> I don't think people are, you know, giving away their, you know, spam and beans. <laughs> You might be saying something more like, you know, enough with the A1 steak sauce. Someone's in need. You don't need to have steak tips every night. You know. So the Bible never suggests a mandatory sacrifice of the bare essentials to live. To the contrary, go to, uh, or actually, I got it for you up here. Forget that. Matthew 6, 25 to 26 in the message. If you decide, this is from his Beatitudes, if you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer, outer appearance than the clothes that you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description careless in the care of God, and you count far more to him than birds. What a wonderfully refreshing perspective after a day in the sewer pipe. Amen? I mean, everything. You can't even turn, let's face it, you can't even turn the television on or the radio if it's not Caleb, and even sometimes on Caleb. You get the garbage from the sewer pipe. Just like, it's just like, you know, it's like one of those little T-handles. And you're in front of a four-inch pipe that's got, you know, a thousand psi behind it, and you just get blown backwards by the garbage from the world. So it is wonderful. That's the, the beauty of coming to class on a night like tonight, and just taking in the word and being refreshed and letting the word wash over you because that's what it does. Again, all this good work is about perspective. However, perspective, sort of like wisdom. Their cousins, perspective, sort of like wisdom, must be wrought in the soul of every individual that gets it. In other words, you're not going to get it just because Pastor Ed says, hey, get this, will you? Hey, here's some wisdom for you. You might use that as guidance. You might use that as incentive. You may imitate my faith even in your own spiritual walk to get from point A to point B. But the only way to get, the only way to be transported from point A to point B is from the Word. You have to, quote, get it on your own. I can't give you your own perspective because you know what? You have your own life. How am I going to give you a perspective? I live next door. How am I going to give you your perspective? What's going on in your household, in your home, in your soul? I can't. I can lead you, but that's as good as it gets. So... All of this good work is about perspective. However, perspective, sort of like wisdom, must be wrought in the soul of every individual that, quote, gets it, which means that, like our lessons a while back on wisdom, 
A person must receive the word. Go to Romans 10.17. Romans 10.17. So for you to gain perspective, there's a, a, a string of pearls, I like to say. There's a few things that have to happen. You can't just come to class, hear a pastor say, oh, here's some wisdom for you. You actually have to go to the Word of God and get it for yourself. There's a, sort of a chain of events that has to happen. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Remember, faith is like a channel for grace. So for Him to grace you out, you need faith. Uh, and faith comes from hearing. That means there's a certain level of what? Obedience, submission, to actually doing what you're doing right now, hearing the Word. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. What we may rightly conclude then is that each of us here this evening must receive the Word of God firsthand before we'll ever have true perspective. You might get glimpses of it. You may be better than yesterday, but it's a slower process than I suppose all of us would like to have occur. But this is why learning takes time. And this is why humility is so important. And this is why things like submission and obedience are so important. So we can conclude that each of us here this evening must receive the Word of God firsthand before we'll ever have true perspective. In a sense, perspective is what we receive when we take what we've learned and apply it to our own circumstances as if to say you know quote here's my place in this world and here's how I'm able to live by faith in this lot of mine look you're gonna you're sitting right I mean let's just think of it this way Andrea sees this side of my face right and you know Cheryl sees this side of my face well I mean they're both good looking so <laughs> These are the things I say. So, but the perspective is different. The perspective is different, isn't it? So here's an analogy for you, and this is just going to drive that point home where I can't give you your perspective. I can lead you. That's the best I can do. And you won't get it unless you take in the word either. So here's an analogy for you. There's a rose bush that was planted smack dab on the property line between two adjacent driveways. Both neighbors are elderly and aren't able to get out very often. However, they are able to see this bush from their windows. One day, Mabel calls Harriet, com complaining that she wishes the rose bush would just die. All it ever produces is thorns. Harriet doesn't understand, so she looks out her window and sees a single rose bush in full bloom. It's gorgeous, she says. Mabel wipes her eyes and says something unintelligible about Harriet's aging eyes. Unbeknownst to either of them, their mailman steals a rose from this rose bush as he leaves the house of the second neighbor essentially plucking one whole side out of the bush. So you see, both ladies are looking at the same rose bush. But because of circumstances out of their control, and even unknown to them, the bush presents itself very differently. What's the difference? Perspective. That's what we call perspective. One sees one side of the bush, one sees another side of the bush. It's the same bush. There are circumstances, who knew the guy was a thief? Oh, hey, Mabel, pluck. Going to go be a hero. The difference is perspective. Again, the point is that perspective is what we receive when we take what we've learned and apply it to our own circumstances, as if to say again, here's my place in this world, and here's how I'm able to live by faith in this lot of mine. You see, the word is the same for each of you, is it not? But our individual circumstances produce different, unique perspectives. 
but it's the same word. Only God has the full perspective. So let me put it this way. First things first. If you try to understand Christ's heart through a worldly lens, you will remain confused your whole life. The word is meant to provide you with divine vision. After your eye is clear, Luke 11:34, divine perspective is possible. Again, if you try to understand Christ's heart through a worldly lens, you will remain confused your whole life. That's why a lot of folks that are in, stuck in some religious ridiculousness who never really learn the Word of God, who never really are even taught it, to be honest, don't understand Christ's heart. And some of them might even take offense. It's you, because you're living and growing in Christ, and you have that confidence, you have that self-assurance, you have that, you know, no fear of death, you have... you. You're looking forward, you have hope, you have joy, you have... I'm not saying you're perfect, but these things become evidenced through your witness. And a person who doesn't have the Word of God is wearing the wrong goggles, right? They get the wrong lens. They say, I don't understand any of this. It doesn't make any sense. The Word is meant to provide you with divine vision. First, you just need to see. That's why we say seeing it all is truth, Ephesians uh, what 5.13. You're supposed to see it all as truth. First, before you even get perspective, once you're able to see it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, this is called spade a spade. Then you are given perspective. Luke eleven thirty four. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. So there's no chance you're going to get any perspective whatsoever if you don't pick up the thing that makes your eyesight clear, which is the Word of God. Arguably the most typical stumbling block for those struggling with something like prosperity testing is taking it the wrong way. Taking it the wrong way, lessons like the past two weeks. One of the stumbling blocks is that they take it the wrong way because they lack perspective, they lack even the word. And if we're willing to objectively seek the truth on the matter by following the crumb trail back to the source issue, why would they take it the wrong way, in other words? We find that they lack vision in the first place. And the reason a believer lacks divine vision is because they lack the word itself, which is really a humility slash obedience issue. You see how everything always comes back to humility and obedience? Everything comes back to humility and obedience. I can do a song and dance up here for the rest of my life, and it's not going to change your perspective. I can't change your perspective. I can give you, I can share perspective with you, but only the Word of God is powerful enough to do that thing. So again, all of this good work on the Doctrine of prosperity under the parent concept of predestination is to give us perspective, specifically perspective regarding grace. You see, there's a reason. You know, these you know prosperity is sort of like a prosperity testing is a is a symptom. Is you know prosperity and passing or failing uh, the test is really a symptom, a symptom of understanding a bigger picture issue, which is God's economy and the currency in God's economy. Says what is grace. So he's trying to give us additional perspective regarding grace. Even that two weeks of you know, somewhat painful lessons was really to get us back to, guess what? Grace. So that we can once again, just like we did with the doctrine of suffering under predestination, with prosperity we're also able to what? Appropriate grace. By definition, if we can rightly say that we are prosperous in any way, we must consider why he has ordained it and what we are to do with this reality. It's just, it was the same. You could take that out and make variables out of some of those words and stuff in the word suffering. Why did he ordain suffering in your life? And which one was it? And what, what do we do with suffering? Isn't that not the baseline? It's the same line of questioning. By grace you suffer. 
by grace you've been predestined to suffer. Why? What was the purpose? To grow you, to mature you. Why did he prosper you? To grow you, to mature you, to put you to a test, a different kind of test completely. One's a test of suffering, one's a test of prosperity. So it's really about grace. For some, this has been quite an eye-opening experience, realizing that they've been failing the prosperity test in ways they weren't even aware of. But as I've taught you many times in the past, you know, eventually, eventually, false doctrines always implode upon themselves. That's what happens. Whenever you have a, a little religion or a little shrine or some false doctrine that you've been clinging to, you know, your flesh likes it because it suits its needs. But eventually, if you're humble and honest, that thing's going to blow up in your face. And that's what's happened for some people based on what they've intimated with me. This is what's happening in people's souls. They're like, I didn't even know I was off kilter in this area. Well, now you know. False doctrines always implode upon themselves eventually. Under the weight of enough scripture and humility, our religions always fail giving way to the light of life. Some additional thoughts worth noting again that most of us can readily relate to on the subject of prosperity since we're moving off of it. You know, the toddler. Consider the following regarding prosperity. The toddler who has no concept of wealth has no bondage to it. I mean, let's face it, they could care less. If they're in their car seat with their bottle and they're in a Porsche or a, a jalopy, they really don't care unless the smoke's coming through the back seat and they're you know, choking, which happens, but that's a different story. But you know what I'm saying. They don't really care. They don't care when they look out the window if they see a jalopy car or a nice car. Right? They don't care. And there's a lot to be said about that. That means that human beings are taught prejudices. Human beings are taught false doctrines. America's riddled with this prosperity issue. That it actually means something. That people should, by every means necessary, stratify themselves in any way possible on the currency of the dollar. I mean, there's, there's not few things are farther from the truth in the Word of God. But that's what we're taught. The world taught you how to idolize self and others, and wealth even. The world taught you to esteem those with worldly riches. The world system persists. Those are just things we should think about when we think about prosperity. What the Word has taught us over the past couple of weeks is this, that in God's economy, prosperity has purpose. Everything by grace has purpose. God just doesn't throw grace at us and say, have fun. Luke 19 Here's grace, do business. There's an activity. So he doesn't just throw grace. There's always a purpose. So prosperity has purpose in God's economy. Grace is given to glorify God. It's God's economy in view when we realize that we receive from others and in turn give to others who receive from us and so on. That's the economy. That's how it goes. So prosperity has purpose. That we've learned. The other piece of this is ensuring that our definition of wealth in the first place isn't pigeonholed into just financial stuff. The reason I use financial is because everybody in here has to deal with it. And it's a common thread for all of us. And it's also, let's face it, a problem. There's a reason why, you know, money is the root, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's in the Bible. There's a reason because it's a problem. So it's an easy one to pick on, but that's not the only thing. We shouldn't pigeonhole these lessons into just financial stuff. Up here on the board. When we talk about giving, when we are prosperous in some way and we have an abundance, when our cup overflows, when our own needs have been met, needs, not wants, needs have been met, we ask ourselves, what can we give? We can give two things, of person or of possession. Can I have a raise of hands, please? Who votes that of person is harder to give than of possession? Pretty much, right? 
It pretty much is a harder thing to do. And that's why we find ourselves, you know, it's like, you know, it's easier. When in all reality, most people would rather have you. They want the very presence of you. God gave you prosperity so that you can relate to others in their presence. The person who lacks divine perspective regarding prosperity thinks of it in worldly terms. The way worldly parents often show love to their kids, and this I think is probably famous in the United States, that parents, because of prosperity, do this. Hey, I love you, kid. Here's another PlayStation 4 game. 60 bucks. I don't care if you're, it's Grand Theft Auto when you're 10 and you're ripping people out by their hair out of car windows and then stepping on their throats and then driving away in their stolen car. You're out of my hair. I gave you 60 bucks. Can you see I love you? So reflect. If you lack the ability to give your children the greatest assets in the universe, the eternally weighted spiritual ones, then what do you give them? Stuff mostly, right? I mean, that's kind of what it is, stuff. I'm sure some of you can relate to this firsthand regarding your own parents. Sure, they gave you stuff and it made you, quote, happy for a time, and you figured that that, that was how parents you know, showed their kids that they loved them. But now that you're seeing the light, you realize that all of that was a mere counterfeit to true love and happiness. That shucking some dollar bills at a kid is not being present. Concentrate on that particular context. Before you begin learning the truth from the Word, you may even impose a false sense of God's love on your own life, assuming that he gives the same way your worldly parents gave. In other words, to that previous point, we learn these things. We learn, it's instituted in our lives, that the way our parents love us is by giving us stuff. Then we take that framework and we superimpose it on God our Father. And we say, well, if he loves us, then he must give me stuff. You know, God loves me so much, he's going to prosper me out, and I'm just going to hoard it for myself because God knows that that's what I want. It's what I did when I was a kid in the house. Mom and dad were cool with it, so I guess dad in heaven's going to be the same way. And we take that framework and we misappropriate it. But I'm going to tell you straight up, folks, that's a lie. And some of you are like, darn my parents. (laughs) Now you're having to backpedal out of dysfunction junction when all those years you thought you were being loved. And now you're having a backpedal out of some dysfunctional false doctrine, some false sense of love that was a lie. Because that's not how God operates. God's not interested in just spoiling you like a brat. He's going to show you love in many, many other ways that have nothing to do with materialism. So all of that's a lie. Up here on the board... Christ's perspective, Christ unabashedly and unequivocally denounced the contemporary, quote, prosperity gospel. Where do you think the prosperity gospel comes from? It comes from a bunch of morons that think that dads who love their kids just give stuff to them. And there's a one-to-one correlation. If dad's not giving you stuff, he must not love you. Sounds like Job's buddies, right? Which we studied at the beginning. Well, that's all garbage. And Jesus Christ saw right through it, and he denounced it. Luke 9, 57 to 62. In that passage, Jesus explains to a professing follower that even he didn't have a home to call his own. So I guess God the Father didn't love his own only begotten son. Huh? Jesus didn't have his own home. But there most of us sit right now with ample homes, more than what we need. But Jesus didn't have a home. So either odd perversion of (laughs) prosperity needs to go out the window or Jesus knew something that we don't. That's what 
we've been looking at. So Jesus explains to professing folly that even he didn't have a home to call his own. To the average U.S. citizen, this would likely draw out a, oh, poor Jesus, and a frown. But to a godly person, an educated one, one with vision, who realizes their relationship is in heaven, or their, excuse me, their citizenship is in heaven, they say, yea for Jesus, because they understand God's will and that prosperity has zero to do with materialism. Jesus was rich in grace. Jesus was rich in grace, and that's true wealth. So the question is, are we to pity Jesus then? I mean, he didn't have a, a house. But the foxes have holes, as the verse goes. Are we just, oh, pity on Jesus. Jeez, bum deal, huh, Jesus? May it never be. One commentator wrote, he does not need your pity. Pity yourself. Rather, if you have a home that holds you back when Christ wants you out upon the high places of the world. We closed on Sunday with a few basic challenges up here on the board. Courage and faith. Are you going to put off addressing the obvious for another day? Or are you willing to address the problem that only seems to be visible when the word speaks to your heart? Or are you going to continue swimming in the world's system of thinking, being double-minded? Those are the challenges. Now that you have the facts, now that you have the goggles, now that you have the word, now that it's not someone's opinion, it's not Pastor Ed, you've got ample scripture and there's much, much more. I invite you to go test it out. Now that you have the vision on this subject, what are you going to do, in other words? Do you have the courage to actually get it done? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19-21, the message I'll give you, don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place where you'll most want to be and end up being. We closed on Sunday with a passage worth reading again. Go to Ecclesiastes 5.10. Ecclesiastes 5.10. I'll just read it quickly. It really is a summary of so much. <clears throat> so he's broadening your perspective. He's opening up your eyes. He's sort of saying, take a, big, take a step back now that the... Heavy lifting is done in your soul. We'll probably visit prosperity again some future date. And it'll sting again and you'll be like, ah, you know. But he's basically saying, remember why, why I'm giving you these things. These are real problems. Everybody's at different phases in their spiritual walk. Some are, not, some are going to get a, a whole lot out of it. Some are going to be convicted real heavily. Some aren't. Some are going to ignore it. Some are going to get convicted and be arrogant. Some are going to be humble. But that's between you and the Lord. But he doesn't want you to lose where we've come from, which was sanctification proper, and why it's imperative that you pass these tests eventually. He's trying to sanctify you. Right? He wants to move you to a better place. He wants to set you apart for his purposes. And if you're stuck in prosperity, you see, you get stalled. So if sanctification is what he's trying to do, then you have to get certain roadblocks out of the way. Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, <clears throat> whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had father to son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return 
as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself, and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. I, got, I was at the table with Joey and Andrea last, last evening, and Joey kept saying the same thing. He's only, what are you, 25, right? He's 25 years old, and he's like, man, I'm realizing that life is short. I'm like, wait till you're 46. It's like just racing. Life is so short. Few years of your life. So what are you going to invest in? Seriously, if, if, if life really is that short, you have to look back and say, well, how have I actually invested my assets, the things that God's given me by grace? How have I done business? And if you're honest, a lot of you will say, I kind of did a lot of business for myself, actually. Built new barns, put more stuff in, built bigger barns, put more stuff in. You know, everybody was like, you're the man. You have the biggest barn on the block. But life is short. Even a 25-year-old realizes that. And he's not even married yet. Wait till you get married. <laughs> then it stretches. I'm just, kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Ecclesiastes 5.19. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So in other words, who cares? You're going to heaven anyways. You've got eternal life in front of you. What's this life? If life is really short, then enjoy it. But the only way you're going to enjoy it is if you live abiding in the word. Because if you go the other route, doing the selfish route, there's no happiness there. There's no peace. There's no contentment. It's striving after the wind. So says the richest, wisest man of his time. Amen? Amen. All right, let's take all of that back with us to where we departed in our primary course of study up here on the board. We've gone through salvation perspectives, the three tenses. You see positional, experiential, ultimate, the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Salvation is always related to the sin issue. It's from, God has saved you from the clutches, from the sovereignty or the domain of sin and he's going to set you apart to his purposes. Sort of two sides of the same coin, and as I taught earlier, if he gives you a coin, you get both sides. These things are guaranteed. So salvation perspective, really, salvation is living in the gospel reality. Because, you know what, we're saved every day. He had, from God's perspective, it's one big salvation plan. When he elected you from eternity past, he plucked you from sin. And it didn't just have to do with that one moment in time when you were 15 or 20 or 30, whatever you old, old you were when you were saved. It didn't just involve that. To God, he, it's all of salvation. And he says, now live in that. I saved you from that. Live in it. Go to Romans 1.16. This is what Paul was getting at. That's what it means to live in the gospel reality. It means to never forget where you've come from. Where you came from was the slave market of sin. <clears throat> and you didn't earn your way out of that slave market, by the way. You were purchased. Your Redeemer bought you with a price on the cross and got you out of that thing. That's how you're grateful. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, 
as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We borrowed a few points from our previous lessons up here on the board. On the perseverance of the saints, it's from faith to faith, that whole thing. Salvation, sanctification, these are guaranteed to the believer. Perseverance of the saints from faith to faith expresses that true faith is not a single event, but a way of life. It endures. In this sense, the righteousness from God that is revealed is unique to true believers only, for they live by faith. The very essence of their life, the way that they live, it's their way of life, endures, and they have a certain confidence. We call that understanding the perseverance of the saints, that we will persevere. Jesus Christ said, I, not, I lost not one. You see, a lot of people don't realize this. The Bible also says you're never going to be tested more than you can handle. Why do you think we have eternal security? Think about that for a moment. Dwell on that this evening. Why do we have eternal security? You know why? Because our Lord guarantees it. Anyways, Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for a true believer. The righteous man lives by faith. However, there does exist in this world counterfeit salvations. All religions come back to one basic satanic strategy. That is that the creature saves himself, sanctifies himself, for himself, and by himself. That's what religion's all about. That's what Satan was, is all about. Save yourself. Be your own savior. Be your own sanctifier. Be a self-made man. Be a self-made woman. That religious stuff is for the weak people of the world. In his prayer to his father, Jesus spoke of sanctification. John 17, 17 and 19 in the Amplified. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart for your purpose, purposes. Make them holy. Your word is truth. Just as you commissioned and sent me into the world, I also have commissioned and sent them believers into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself to do your will so that they also may be sanctified, set apart, dedicated, made holy in your truth. That was our Lord's prayer for us, that we be sanctified. It's time now to begin then moving back to where we had left off before our sidebar on predestination and the sub sets which were suffering and prosperity up here on the board. Sanctification perspectives. Remember that from God's perspective, sanctification means to be set apart for Him. Because of the construct of time, we have phases. We think of it as phases as man. So that's our perspective. There's the positional, the experiential, and the ultimate phases. Positional sense, it's imputed righteousness. That's a, a judicial issue. You've been judicially sanctified, set apart. Experientially, we call that imparted righteousness, and that's something that we, when we bear fruit daily, that's what we call imparted or experientially being sanctified. And then ultimately, or complete perfect righteousness is an eternal issue. But from God's perspective, it's one issue. From man's, it's three basic phases. And this is how he gives it to us in the Word so that we can sort of take hold of it and understand it. And you know that there's obviously a parallel between the three tenses of salvation perspective. I mean, that's not... Because, look, salvation is always an issue of sin. Sanctification is always an issue of righteousness. He saves you from unrighteousness, from sin, and he sanctifies you to righteousness. That's how it goes, and it's on the same sort of playing field, if you would. So first, let us not forget another foundational truth up here on the board. And some of this is review, of course, but it's going to get us situated to where we were a few weeks ago. Only God can sanctify man. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. And that will be basically a frustration of God's plan for you. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form, some form of self-sanctification, some modified version of what he wants for you because your flesh is getting in the way. Again, we are amplifying Paul's words here. 
and Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is, is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Faith and righteousness, then. What is or what Paul is getting at in Romans 1.17 when he says, this righteousness that we've received from God is revealed, is that it is revealed in such a way that faith is the channel for grace that sanctifies. At salvation and beyond. And that's what it means. From faith to faith. From faith to faith. Faith being the channel which grace flows through. So you're sanctified from faith to faith. The entire sanctification process is through these channels, by grace, therefore his good work is done in you. All motivated by love. Therefore, when true faith exists in a believer, the grace of God is revealed. Why? Because even faith is a gift. The fact that you have any faith right now, thanks be to God. You think you conjured that up on yourself? That's what man tries to do. I was the reason I was saved. I had faith. I'm the one who generated the incredible amount of faith that it takes to be saved. Think about that. I'm the one who generated it. No, you didn't. Faith was a gift. God says if you have the heart, which is a humble heart, he'll give you the faith to believe. There's no, unless you'll boast, right? Ephesians 8, 2, 8, 9. You don't even, even the faith. Even the, he, in other words, he sets up the channel, and then through that channel he sets up, he's like, stated more practically, God saves, delivers us at every phase of sanctification. He gives us faith through which his grace is poured out. A believer then lives by faith, Grace flows through the channel of faith, so to speak. A few weeks ago, we began digging our heels into the biblical terminology that we will encounter in this endeavor to discover more about sanctification, what it means to be sanctified as a point of review. These words, sanctify, sanctification, used 106 times in the Old Testament and 31 times in the New Testament, in general, it refers to being set apart or the state of being so. It typically relates to matters of position and relationship. For example, regarding a person's standing with God. That's the baseline when you see these terms, or when I use them, that's what we're looking at. <clears throat> it, absolute, it is absolutely correct for a believer to say, I've been sanctified and I'm being sanctified in the same sentence. It's absolutely correct. Why? Different phases. I will be sanctified, ultimately. It's okay to say that, because it's true. God's perspective, it's one thing. Our perspective? The other word noting, or other word worth noting here that relates to sanctification in the Bible is the word holy, or holiness, or its derivatives used about 400 times in the Old Testament and 12 times in the New Testament, referring to believers, refers to being separated from that which is unholy. Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, thus he was sanctified. We just saw that in uh, John 17 in his prayer. Except for God, sinlessness is not necessarily implied, as even the holiest of priests in the Old Testament were sinners. So this gets us thinking about what? The same old thing that the Spirit's been harping on pretty much in every single doctrine that we touch. Every single scripture even that we go to, there's always this sort of healthy suspicion of whether or not we get the context right. And the same goes with these very important topics of you know, salvation, sanctification, holiness. Both sanctified and holy are context-sensitive in the Bible. So when the Bible talks about someone being holy, it doesn't mean they're perfect. When the Bible talks about God's holiness, it is perfect. But it's the same word. That's how important context is. Because if you read it out of context, you might say, 
Well, I'm holy, and God's holy, therefore I must be perfect right now. But that's not true. Because then you would never sin. If you say you never sin, come on, you have deeply rooted issues. So both sanctified and holy are context-sensitive in the Bible. For example, a human being who is obviously flawed, who human beings are flawed, obviously, may be relatively sanctified from their peers before an absolutely holy God. In other words, think of the second phase even, experiential sanctification. Sometimes we bear good fruit, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we bear fruit and it looks good and our neighbor's bearing bad fruit and comparatively this type of, not that we compare, but you get the point. Comparatively, we're sanctified. Our fruit's good, theirs wasn't. Think of Cain and Abel. Abel's sacrifice was good, Cain's wasn't. Abel was sanctified, holy, Cain wasn't. Sacrifice was no good. So it's this relative sanctification that in the context of human beings must be understood but that's different than the holy God that understands such relative sanctification. We see, for example, we see the Hebrew word kadesh used four times in the following verse. Go to Leviticus 21.8. Used four times in the following verse describing the holiness and sanctification of the Levitical priests in the, whole, in the Old Testament. So it's the same Hebrew word. Look at Leviticus 21.8. It's nice because there's two contexts here for the same word. And this is all the Spirit's saying, is that if we're going to talk about sanctification and holiness, we have to understand that we're not holy the way God is holy. Because God is perfectly holy and we are not. Leviticus 21.8, you shall consecrate, that's Kadash in the Hebrew, you shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy, Kadash, to you. And that's relative holiness is in view, isn't it? Yeah. He's going to be, in other words, these Levitical priests are going to be set apart for God's work. It's almost like, I mean, a, a pastor is set apart in a way. For God's work that way. It doesn't mean he's better. He's just set apart that way. And this is what's going on. There's a relative holiness in view. For I, the Lord, who sanctifies the Kadash again, you am holy. Same Hebrew word, Kadash. That's an absolute holiness, though. So we have an admixture of same Hebrew word, Kadash. In the same verse, it's used for the relative holiness of a priest in the absolute holiness of God. So you see, that's like a perfect example of, hey, wait a minute, the same word? That's why, look, I've done them with you many times, word studies. What have I said, especially in the recent years? Don't make doctrines out of word studies. That's very, very dangerous. People go, oh, do you see, you know, uh, the Greek word so-and-so is here in this scripture, and then they take it and they just blow it over every other occurrence of that word in Scripture outside of context, and all of a sudden the Bible starts saying some crazy things. Why? Because they did a little word study and made the mistake of taking things out of context. Word studies can be very, very dangerous, folks. Seriously. Unless you unless you've got the time and I say this with complete respect for all of you. Unless you've got the time, like I've been given in this post, be careful with your, with your, you know, with your concordances and your lexicons and stuff like that. People get all, you know, they're like, hey, look what I got at the flea market. Uh-oh. Right? They're like, hey, this word means this. And look at all these verses where it shows up. I'm just going to take it and plug it in. Read the first one, and I'm going to superimpose that definition on every other place in the Bible. Well, that's horrible. That's, a, that's just about the worst idea. If you never read a Greek word in your life and you read for context, you're much better off. Truth be told. I think we've all learned our lesson on word studies. 
wonderful if you get it right, but very, very dangerous uh, in terms of creating false doctrines if you get it wrong. <clears throat> the point is that although the priests were holy and sanctified unto a perfect holy Lord, they were relatively described as such. So that's a great example of what the Spirit's saying. And that's just one verse of many where it is quite apparent that context changes the meaning of the same word. Context dictates the meaning of the word. Believe that. Very interesting. And that's, you know, I've, I've given you the English version, right? Anybody here, anybody here loves God, right? But some of you have animals and you say, I love my dog or I love my cat. It's the same English word. Are you going to say that you love your cat? If you do, I'll put you in that other category I just alluded to. You might have other problems. You don't love your cat the same way you love God, I hope, and vice versa. But it's the same English word. So we can't do that thing, can we? No. Kind of funny, though, now that I'm thinking about it, because people say, oh, I love my dog so much, the greatest love I've ever known. That must be the same love I should have for God. Because their dog is their idol. You get what I'm saying? Anyways. Not to offend anyone that has dogs. I could have said ferret. <laughs> or raccoon. Or llama. Or alpaca. I learned alpaca is better than wool. Alpaca fur. Thank you, Don. Going to get me some alpaca socks and gloves now. I digress. Sanctification perspectives up here on the board. We're just about out of time. But we're back proper to where we were from you know, a few weeks ago. This is where we departed, remember. We had gotten into positional sanctification issues, which is on the lines of the judicial aspect or the imputed righteousness at salvation. Let me just, I'll, I'll tease you with this, then I'll close. We're not going to maybe go to one verse after this. Positional sanctification, imputed phase. God wills to sanctify, make holy, the whole world by saving them through Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved from the penalty of sin, positional salvation in view, are delivered to imputed judicial righteousness through justification, Romans 4, 23-25. A believer's position, quote, in Christ is the greatest inspiration for holy living, a.k.a. experiential sanctification. So you see how intrinsically bound salvation and sanctification are. And how, I mean, he's not letting that go. Ever since we entered into this thing, he said, right, this is the gospel. I want you to live the gospel reality. But when you talk about salvation and sanctification, I want you to think about them as unified things, because that's how I, God, think about salvation and sanctification. If you're saved, I'm going to sanctify you. And that's the end of it. And so we can't, we can study them out discreetly, but we can't separate them. We shouldn't divorce them from each other, because then it's a whole other ball of wax in terms of false doctrines and dangerous things, and that's how you get, you know, the weak gospel and blah, blah, blah. That was technical, by the way. A believer's position in Christ is the greatest inspiration for holy living. Acts 20, 32, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 6, 11, Hebrews 10, 10, 14, Jude 1, 1. Let's do one scripture. Let's end on scripture. Romans 4, 23. Those who have been saved, the context on the in the point in the board, those who have been saved from the penalty of sin are delivered to imputed righteousness through justification. So here's this whole forensic sort of judicial thing, the thing we read about in Ephesians 2 as a whole. We often pluck out Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but if you read Ephesians 2 as a whole, it's all about the judicial aspects of salvation. Certainly not the only thing. Um, but this is part of it. When you talk about this aspect of it, this is certainly fundamental because it's the judicial aspect of it. Romans 2, 4, or excuse me, Romans 4, 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. 
He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because for the purpose of, if you would, our justification. So that's our intro. That's almost as far as we got last time with it, but that takes us out of the depths of predestination and suffering and prosperity and takes us back up to where we were halfway between salvation perspective and sanctification perspective. We are out of time. Let's buy it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you. The phone.